Introducing Mortgage Matters. This is a great time to go buy a house. This is when the real estate fortunes are made. A show dedicated to helping you navigate the challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were put into conservatorship in 2008 and continued to dominate the mortgage market. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess... Is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage, live outrage. from the KBEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time about. for Mortgage Matters. All right, here we are. We're ready to go. Another live show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a got an action-packed show for you today. I'm Dan Podesto. I'm joined today by Jason Van Dyke. Good morning, good morning. Thanks for being here. We're uh, filling in some spots these last couple of weeks as um, our regular co-host, my regular co-host Jason Grody deals with some personal losses, unfortunately. He's had a couple of grandfathers in his life um, pass away this last week, so... Heart goes out to Jason. Hope he's doing all right down south, dealing with um, dealing with family stuff, and uh, hope he gets back here soon. Tough, tough times. I know all through the holidays, and then have you know it's supposed to be an enjoyable time, right? <laughs> but, right. You know, life life doesn't always know the the plan or the calendar. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't usually follow a plan, I guess. Circle of life for yeah. sure. It's uh, definitely brings some perspective, right, to the new year. Yeah, yeah. It's always you know the new year always brings some reevaluation, but things like like this, these major losses in life, also kind of reset what's important to you. And and uh, you know it can if there's a silver lining to it, I guess that would be it. Family. Yeah, I mean families. Family's important. They're close, and it's. Uh, you know, hard thing to go through. So really feel for Jason. I know he was real close with um, both of the family members he lost. So mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. sorry to just having to deal with that. It's pretty nice that he's been able to be there, though. You know, yeah. those uh, there's you never know exactly how it all plays out, what that those final chapters look like. And yeah. so I think it's just a, another testament to who Jason is really as a person more than anything else. But being able to make those trips down there, which is not easy, mudslide, changing oh, road conditions and trying to get down there. And he spent a lot of time driving over the last few weeks to make sure that he was there to spend that time. And I mean, I think that that's 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 one of the biggest gifts that you can get give and and receive really is having the people around you in those final days. I mean, that's, that's so important. Yeah. And what a blessing that he was able to provide that. And that's, that's the way to go out. That's how I want to go out. Yeah. Hopefully there's a few people around. <laughs> yeah. As tough as the times were, I know he got to share some, some pretty cool stories with, um, with his grandpa. I know on new year's, he texted us all a picture of him in the hospital and he was hearing yep. stories about world war two and yep. all these things. And that's, you know, it's, it's not an enjoyable thing to be in the hospital next to someone as they're dying, but to to hear some of those stories that you don't get to hear often yeah. or ever, um, it's it's kind of neat. 
to experience that with your loved one. Yeah, and you got to carry that on. I mean, at the end of the day, they're your family, right? And everyone goes through this. I mean, no one is exempt from this. So it's yep. just part of, like I said, the circle of life and the process of it all. But to know that, you know, you your DNA is, you know, going forward because of this person and mm-hmm. looking at your kids and knowing the same thing. It's like they're, they're, they really are still living through you scientifically, even yeah. though, you know, whatever your, whatever your religious beliefs are, um, physically, it's interesting to see because you really can see a lot of similarities. Yeah. You know, I look at, I look at my son and I look at grandparents and I'm like, I, I, man, I see you yeah. guys in each other, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. It so, is neat. See the characteristics and mannerisms that, that just carry through. They're so subtle, but so they're still, they really are (laughs) always still there. Even, even like I said, whatever you believe religiously um, or spiritually, you can physically see it, which is, I think really comforting, Yeah, really comforting for everyone, for the people that are passing and the ones that are still here. So, so again, you know, our thoughts are with Jason. Hope he makes it back here soon. I know he's, he's, uh, he'd rather be here. I, I know that's, that's for sure. So he's uh, he's down south. Glad to have you here in the studio with me. Yep, yep. It's, uh, Happy a nice to be holiday. Here. You were you took a little time away to go visit your family. Speaking of family, that's right. In uh, in Colorado, that's right. It was uh, it was really nice. It's always nice to unplug and just get away, spend that time. It's uh, it, it's fun that that happens. You know, the holidays all happen around the new year too, like you said. So there's always that reevaluation of things personally and business wise. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun to, it's fun to take that time away and really get a sense of, of what's important and prioritize and things like that. So I always come back with sort of a new fresh look on, on a lot of things in life, which is great, which is great because it kicks off the new year and gets you headed in the, in what should be a good direction, which is always good. Good. How about you? Yeah. I, I don't feel that, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't you feel didn't that have all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, uh, Did you go anywhere? Did I you enjoyed do the holidays. We stuck around here. Um, for New Year's, we actually took the train down to San Diego. Okay. And uh, spent some time with some family. Um, so that was nice. It was a nice new way to travel. New uh, fun weekend. But, you know, for me and my role in our at central coast lending i the this time of year the end of the year and the beginning right. of the year are extremely busy as i right. do the final uh financial wind down mm-hmm. of 2017 and the tax preparation and ramp up of the new year and just a uh, lot going on so this is a this is a tough time of year for me so not as I as don't relaxing feel, <laughs> i don't feel light and refreshed and ready to take on a new year i feel bogged down weighed down and uh, a pile on top of me. You still have some young <laughs> kids too. So that's, and, that's uh, man, it's hard to ever feel refreshed, right? When you've got them sure. pulling at your shirt tail all the time. But the train is a nice way to travel. Yeah, it was cool. People that don't haven't experienced that, there's the there's a lot of benefit of sitting back with a cup of coffee and watching the ocean go by as you you make your trek down. Tra- traveling can be a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah, it was neat. I um I have not ever taken the train south. I've taken it from northern, up in northern California, like from Sacramento to the Bay Area before. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, a lot longer of a ride, but it 
it was nice. I, I could see myself doing it again. I was actually finding myself encouraging my parents to use the train to come mm-hmm. down and visit rather than drive. Yeah. You know, I just... It seems like every time you make one of those four or five hour trips, you see a car accident that doesn't look too good. There's just the general stress of that guy's cutting me off or he's going too slow. Or, Why is that guy going so fast? And, <laughs> you know? So just all that stress was absent from the trip. That was nice. And well, with the kids, it's nice, too, because they can wander around. They can stand up and stretch their legs and yeah. go downstairs and get a hot pocket or whatever yeah. it is that they want to do. So it's nice to have that that freedom of space really yeah it was it was very cool plus there's some beautiful scenery there is that you don't get to see from the freeway or if you're driving on the freeway you're paying attention to the cars and you don't really get to see the scenery. right yeah it's so true. there's some really beautiful things to see that you can you can't you can only see from the train yeah really. one, of, one of my favorite memories is taking caden my boy down to santa barbara zoo oh, to yeah. get right on the train in grover beach get dropped off super close to the zoo, mm-hmm. spend some time down there, get on the train, come back. I mean, that, that's, that's fun stuff yeah. right there. Yeah, go across cool. Vandenberg Air Force Base there. And yeah, it is, and it is beautiful. Parts of the base that you couldn't see, and it's beautiful out there. Yeah, it's really nice. It's fun. It's a yeah. fun time. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was my new year, but we're back at it, back to back to real life yeah back holidays to the grind, are over. Right? actually holidays are over we get to we get to enjoy one more three-day weekend here this weekend there's uh, a lot of those right yeah i mean there's like it seems like about one a month i don't feel i maybe you don't sense it quite as much yet because your kids are still young but it feels like the kids are always out of school like do they <laughs> ever go to school it seems crazy to me the amount of time that they spend in school compared to the time off not that I'm fully complaining, because I do like to take advantage of traveling right. and going to do some fun things, but man, they're out of school a lot. I know. Yeah. See, my kids are in preschool, so they don't have the same schedule. They they were in school all week last week. I believe they go on Monday, too. Hmm. Um, but I did notice that the elementary school in Morro Bay, <laughs> it didn't appear that there was school on Friday. Yeah, it seemed we, like it was maybe a teacher work day or something. Probably, and we just got through with Christmas, and so we had, you know, I guess the teacher work day maybe, or yeah. And then of course Monday, Monday we have uh, Martin Luther King Day, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then next month we got President's Day. <laughs> you know, it's well, just, and you, you know, know I really appreciate it yeah. because I you kind of get into yeah. this. Oh, these vacation days are yeah, nice yeah. over Thanksgiving yeah. and yes. Christmas and New Year's. You're like. I'm, I could get used to this three-day work week schedule. This is nice. <laughs> yeah. So then yeah. to shock the system and go back to those five-day work weeks um, come January, it's nice to, you know, just a couple weeks in to get another three-day weekend. It kind of eases you back to you go. the normal you go. normal schedule. So I, th- I think it's well-planned. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, whoever does that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so... Anyway, I think now's pro- good good warm up here. Let's take a quick commercial break and um, and we'll get into the week that was. Talk a little bit about the markets, interest rates moving higher. Uh, you know, financing a home just got a little more expensive this week thanks to some bond movement and rate movement going in the the upward direction. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that, and uh, we have a lot of questions that have come in um, to the office via email just client questions um, a lot of a lot of things that we thought were good general questions to just share on the air and discuss on the air um, 
probably things that a lot of a lot of you are wondering about. So we'll we'll do that for a, a large portion of the show too. I also want to remind you that the phone lines are open. We're live here in the studio. You can give us a call. Um, 543-8830, 543-8830 rings live here in the studio. Jim will answer and uh, get your question or put you live on the air to ask your question yourself. Um, so that's what's happening in this, uh, this show. We'll uh, take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. Call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KBEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. Hi, this is Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. There's a common myth that home buyers need to save a 20% down payment to buy a home. The fact is we offer numerous zero down and low down payment loan programs. Before you meet with a realtor, step one is to get pre-approved. Just call 543 Central Coast Lending is an equal housing lender. California BRE number 0183960. California DBO number 6054783. NMLS number 328358. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. Jim, I see where you're going with this. That's right. You only get one life, right? That's right. Live it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Gotta love Born to be Wild. Yeah. All right, here we are. We're ready to go. It's 920. We're, uh, we're here. We're going to talk a little bit about, about the markets. There wasn't a... a ton of news last week. Um, we got a, a lot of news the week prior with the employment report. And again, looking looking pretty good. Um, still struggling to see significant wage growth, but you know it's moving ever so slightly higher. We got this week, the, the biggest economic news was um, inflation-related. 
and some retail sales figures. So I thought we could talk just a minute about inflation. Don't really know what direction this will take us, but um, it is a market moving number. It is arguably the primary um, the primary economic item that the Fed is looking at right now as mm-hmm. they um, make make policy decisions. Um, you know, they've they've talked a lot about inflation and and wanting and and that it's frustratingly under target under that two percent target i think what did i see in this producer price index that the um yearly rate for cpi was down one tenth of a percent to 2.1 percent so that's a little a little bit or right at basically the um the target although the the ppi is a little different from the fed's number the Fed looks at PCE, which is some variation of producer prices, but it's it's the standard by which they've been evaluating inflation in the markets. I think the general takeaway here is that we're just continuing to not see significant growth in inflation in spite of some ingredients that seem like they would put us in an inflationary environment, like all of the money being pumped into the economy over the last 10 plus years, mm-hmm. um, you know, to dig our, to help solve this economic problem, mm-hmm. you know, related to housing, mm-hmm. lots of money. I mean, the, what I think in, in the eight years we added like $10 trillion to the debt. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of extra money. It was a big can we kicked down the road, right? Yeah. So it, when, when does that all sort of hit us it seems like it should right yeah i mean that's when when you talk about the ingredients that that create inflation um pumping a bunch of extra money into the economy into the Mm -hmm. system tends to be an inflationary action Mm -hmm. that's what happens that's what inflation is it's it's inflation is a devaluation of your dollar really Mm -hmm. because there's more money in the system Mm -hmm. Um, that's often how it works and then we have you know right before christmas we have a new tax plan that's signed into law which that's big some of the oversight committee you know forecasts estimate that there could be as much as a trillion dollar deficit annually as a result of this a lot of it depends on how business um unfolds as a result of the tax plan or just as a result of life. And that, <laughs> you know? that may take a while to figure out too. I mean, yeah. the, it, there's so much to decipher with the new tax plan. I mean, so <clears throat> many, we get a lot of questions about, um, you know, what's going to be now tax deductible and is my home equity line interest now going to be tax deductible? And, and right. is there's just, there's so much that is still needs to be flushed out. So, but it's definitely on the on the top of a lot of people's minds for sure. Yeah. Um. The, I mean, I guess the the one good thing about having low inflation and continuing to have low inflation is we still get those low interest rates. So right. You know, usually the, the you know that thirty thousand foot view of things as inflation goes up, interest rates are also going to go up, and that's also going to affect obviously the affordability of buying a home as interest rates climb. Um, and you know, if we're not seeing a decrease in home values, which we're really not seeing right now, home values are going up, money's getting more expensive. 
um, it's it's definitely going to shrink the the purchasing pool of buyers for sure. So something's got to give at some point. But uh, I, I mean, we are, you kind of alluded to that before the break, we are seeing some interest rate increases right now. Yeah. Uh, and have really over the last couple of months. So is it's this heading foreshadowing? In that is this foreshadowing the inflation that we're about to see in the more general economy? Do you think? Who knows? Really? Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, you, you, you think we always like to feel like we've got a good handle on these economic reports, and when we see these economic reports forecasted and then actually come out, and then they're revised, and how interest rates are going to move based on what these economic reports and this economic data tells us. Um, a lot of times we can be accurate in forecasting which direction rates are going to go, but like this, like you just talked about, there's, there's always these magic bullets that seem to be chambered and then fired where all of a sudden, you know, we, we artificially see interest rates kept lower than, than what maybe the normal market movement would require. Mm-hmm. So who's to say really what's going to happen? We can say that. I think from what I've seen and read and just the the knowledge that I've gained over the years of doing this, that I, I think rates, any movement will be small. I mean, they, they can't do anything that's going to dramatically affect interest rates, I don't think. Um, not <laughs> dramatically higher. I think that I think every movement will be small. And seeing that over the last you know, short window of time, if we look backwards, gives us some indication that that's the direction that they're going. I I finally feel somewhat confident in my answer that I don't really think rates are going to get much better than they no. are now. No, Right? I mean, I that agree. upward pressure is has been building, is building, and I just don't see how they can go lower. No, and I agree with you on the slow incremental changes from the Fed level. Mm-hmm. You know, they're... Right now, forecasts are for three, maybe four quarter point rate hikes this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's going to basically track inflation. As long as inflation stays under control or and or low, um, we'll continue to see just these slow and steady rate hikes by the Fed. If we see inflation start to bump up more significantly, then we could potentially see something slightly more mm-hmm. dramatic i don't know if dramatic sorry words you know just a, a larger sure policy change from the fed maybe a half point change or maybe more frequency you know they don't have to do these things in three month intervals they can they meet on an almost monthly basis i think it's like 10 times a year they get together yep <clears throat> so i i agree with you on that slow and steady pace is you know, based on how things sit today, I, last week I spent some time talking about the 10 year note yield and that relationship to the 30 year fixed mortgage. Historically, there's about a one and a half point spread between the 10 year note yield and the 30 year fixed mortgage. Last year, that 10 year note yield was right around 2.35. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and we saw a 30 year fix just under 4%. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the metrics were lining up the way they should. Um, and I, I had talked about the range that we were in in that 10-year note yield and that it seemed to have some resistance at the high end uh, at about 2.5%. And if we were to break through that, watch out, we might, we might bump up in rates. And sure enough, we broke through that later in the week. And I think the week closed out with that 10-year note yield around 2.55. So now it's got me a little concerned that, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Rates aren't – I don't see rates getting – 
better. I mean, yeah, from week to week, you might see a little downward movement every now and then, but mm-hmm. in general, things are going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I wonder now, are we in a new trading range where the 3% 30-year fixed with no points is a thing of the past? Are we now four and up going forward? It's one thing that I love to share with my clients. <clears throat> I, I love looking at bond charts and you touch on a couple things, these, these resistance levels. And so when we physically print out a bond chart and see these trading ranges, there are these moving averages, these 50 day moving averages and 200 day moving averages. And it's pretty amazing how we trade within these ranges and even, you know, good and bad. We bump up against these ceilings of resistance and these floors of support. And the, it's critical to understand when we break through one of those. And you, you mentioned it right there. If we break through, um, let's say this floor of support in the bond market and we, you know, we can bounce off of it and bounce off of it. But once it breaks through, there's, there's usually some alarms going off. And a lot of times we'll see a dramatic drop because we've now broken through that floor of support. So mm-hmm. I think we are testing those now. And like you said, maybe even going through those floors of support, which again, just, uh, man, it just gives more of a, of an idea that rates are probably, on the upward trend for sure. Yeah. The other great thing about these bond charts is that there's a long, long history that mm-hmm. you can look at. And mm-hmm. when you go back, not even that long. I mean, when you go back just to the, you know, 2010, 11, 12, you know, and earlier, mm-hmm. that era and earlier, I mean, interest rates were six, 7%. Mm-hmm. So not that long ago, interest rates were more near their historical norms, which is yeah. that 6 to 8% range. So to try to put it all into perspective, while we're talking about rates moving higher and the lows being behind us, 4% 30-year fixed mortgage, which is roughly where we're at today, mm-hmm. uh, is still historically low. It's still good. Yeah, it's not 3%. And you know, some people even got in some twos yes. um, there for a minute, but it's still good in historical, the bigger historical I, I always laugh at that <laughs> generationally when I sit down with a client and we talk about you, you talk about a, a more experienced, older buyer and you can have those conversations because they tell you the stories about, well, when I got my first mortgage, it was 14%. <laughs> right. So when you talk about the difference between three and a half and 4%, for them, it's, it's relatively insignificant. They already are kind of looking at that broader picture of things where as you get a millennial sitting down looking to buy their first home, their, their look back it seems to be much, much shorter. And so they're only looking at maybe a two or three year window. Right. And so when they when they see these really high rates at four yeah. percent, they want that three percent that they saw a couple of years ago and they're really frustrated that they can't have it. So it's interesting that just that that little tweak in perspective. But I I, I agree with you. Historically we're still in a very, very, very low range. This is still considered cheap money. Very cheap. <laughs> yep. Jim over here is flagging me down and showing me showing me a little ad that's on the side of his screen. Yeah. And I th- I think you're doing uh-huh. the thing that a lot of our customers not a lot of our customers, this- but people will call in and do. Well, you're yeah. saying that rates are four percent, but I'm seeing ads here for three. <laughs> well, sir, yeah, yeah. sir, hold on a moment. Yeah. Is it a 15-year fixed loan? 
Right. Okay, because that's one thing. A 15-year fixed loan is going to mm-hmm. be a lower rate than a 30-year. Should I start mm-hmm. counting all of the things that we could list? Is it, a, is it an adjustable rate mortgage? Is it, yeah. is it fixed for like yeah. three or five years and then amortized over 30, and then you have all those adjustments to deal with? Because that yeah. also has a lower start rate. Right. The also, one that, so $225,000 loan. No, nah, that really doesn't have a lot doesn't to matter. do with it. I okay. mean, yeah, loan amount has something to do with it. But okay. anything under about 450000 should be the the same interest rate given the same credit score and yeah. and loan to value and, and I, other characteristics. I just thought it was funny. It's an ad that popped up on my yeah. screen when we're talking you about know, this. You know, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. Is is Google or YouTube or whatever listening to us? Uh, right yeah, now? I'm doing uh, YouTube. <laughs> are they listening? <laughs> it's, for our, they are. It's, it's for our next bumper music, but it happened to be there. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. That kind of transitions into some of the the – the questions that you had mentioned that we're sure. going to cover. Um, one of them specifically that Shannon and Oceano emailed in was how do some banks offer no closing cost loans? And is this too good to be true? And I think that ties into a, a lot of those phone calls that we get where people call in and say, well, what's your rate? Right. And man, there's just That's a hard question to answer. There's succinctly. so many things that go into it. Yeah. They're there. Like you mentioned, there's your credit score and your credit history and your credit profile. That's a, a big piece of what you can qualify for. Are you going to have access to these top tier interest rates or not? And then let's say you know your credit score is 800. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the, the the advertised rate that you see on the internet because a lot of times there's a little asterisk, like you said, where this is an adjustable rate mortgage or it's fixed. They call it a fixed loan, right? But then it's fixed for five years. That's long enough, right? right? That should be good enough for you. But there's there's so many little pieces that go into what makes up an interest rate that it's so hard to say. And then given everything being equal, you still have a choice in which interest rate you take. So right. it's like buying anything else, right? If you want the top end model of vehicle and you want leather and you want all the bells and whistles, which in in our world would need the best possible interest rate, you're going to have to pay a little bit more to get into that interest rate. Mm -hmm. Where if you buy something that, you know, is middle of the road and I'm willing to forego this or forego that, where in our world would be, maybe I'll, I'll take a slightly higher interest rate. The, the closing costs on that scenario are going to be a little bit less. So there's this give and take that is always present that I think it's important for people to understand that not only are there these, all these other outside factors that ultimately determine sort of where you sit. But then once you determine where you are, you still have some some control over which interest rate you take. So yeah. I think that's uh that's important to understand and sitting down with someone that understands that and can explain that is is super critical. Super critical. With respect to the advertising piece of that, oftentimes I, I do our ads so I'll, and I I kind of see what the other companies are doing and a typical a typical component of an ad is um, paying points. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times the advertised rate is is including you paying points because the advertised rate can be lower because mm-hmm. you're paying more for it. Mm-hmm. The APR also tends to be lower when um, when you pay points. It's just the way it works. It's ever so slightly lower. Um so for advertising purposes, you always want to show your lowest rate, your lowest APR. So to do that, you're often showing a more expensive 
interest rate. Yeah, and when you say points, you're talking about a, a percentage of, of the cost, right, of the loan amount. So yes. if you have a, a $500,000 loan and you're paying <clears> one <throat> point to get into that interest rate, you're paying $5,000 to get that rate. Right. And sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes, you know, if you're going to be in a home for an extended period of time, it often makes sense to look at the lowest interest rate possible. Yes, you may pay a little bit more upfront, but the whole idea is that this lower interest rate over a long extended period of time will create more of a benefit than that initial outlay of money. So if we can look at an amortization schedule and say, yeah, you know what, here's two different interest rates. This one costs $5,000 more because it's one point on your $500,000 loan, but that lower rate over this five-year window or 10-year window or 30-year window is going to save you, you know, 20, 50, $100,000. Well, then it, then it's simple math. I'll I'll spend 5,000 today to save 100,000. I right. mean, that's just a good financial investment. And a lot of times when you're doing a refinance transaction, that's not even money you have to come out of your pocket for. Right. I mean, that's just rolled into the transaction. Yeah, you just so, add yeah, it to what's, the loan balance. What's the cost? That's important to know because that's a lot of times the next question, right? Well, what, what rate do you have and, and how much is this going to cost me? Right. Well, there's an analysis that we need to do. And part of that analysis is based on your specific scenario and how long you plan on being in that house. And if you plan on being in that home and in that loan for an extended period of time, it makes sense to look at those lower rates. Yes, maybe a little bit more expensive on the front end, but if the benefit outweighs the cost, then it just makes sense. So er- earlier this week, or actually late in the week, I was at the grocery store out in Morro Bay and ran into a friend and friend of the show, Greg Astle. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's a realtor out there on the coast. And we got to talking, talking real estate, of course, because right. what, what else are we going to do? <laughs> right. Um, and he was sharing with me, and I, and I think this is true when we're advising clients, we've often talked about the average time that a, that a homeowner's in a home, right? It's something, it, it helps us figure out the break, you know, when we're evaluating the break even point of this different, this decision between the higher rate with the lower fees and mm-hmm. the lower rate with the higher fees, we want to find that break even point. Yep. And a lot of it's based on how long do you plan on being in this home? Yep. And historically, um, California Association of Realtors has, has suggested that the average Californian, the, the average time that a Californian is in a home is about five to seven years. Mm-hmm. I think nationally what I've heard is it's closer to five years. In California, it's a little longer, closer to seven. Mm-hmm. He was sharing with me, Greg was sharing with me in the uh, when we were talking, that now the California Association of Realtors has reevaluated that metric, and they're saying Californians' average time in home is closer to 20 years. Dang. So blowing the old metric out of the water completely. Um we were talking about why a little bit. He suggested a lot of it had to do with Prop 13, you know, right. the, the property taxes. I've looked at that. We've looked at buying a new home and said, right. okay, so what's our property tax obligation now? And so let's say we move up and buy something that's a little nicer. Man, that property tax obligation on a monthly basis is is it, it will it will stop people from buying it will change people's minds maybe i'll just convert this garage into an office space so i can keep that property tax bill low i mean that that property tax piece is so important well i think a lot of people's plan for retirement revolves around paying off the house mm-hmm. it's your biggest monthly expense mm-hmm. is that house payment um and so a lot of people you know they can start to get serious about retirement plans when paying off the mortgage 
is something they they can see. It's it's now a real possibility that this is going to happen, and mm-hmm. I'm going to make it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's never going to go away is your property taxes. Right. That portion of your housing payment remains forever. Um, the mortgage part, when you pay that off, that's going to go away, but the taxes always remain. And so you see people who've owned their home for 30 years and they pay a thousand dollars a year in taxes. That's pretty awesome. They're like, I'm not moving. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of transfer that as well though, right? There is, but, and this is something that we also were getting into, um, right now the rule is, I think there's an age restriction. I want to say it's 55 and over. Mm -hmm. You get a one time transfer opportunity but you have to buy the same or lower in value i want to say they allow it's like 105 percent of your right of your value right so you can buy up ever so slightly but mm-hmm. not significantly basically you can buy the same price home or lower right so the whole idea is that you're the empty nester and you're moving into you're downsizing, downsizing but yeah. able to keep that tax base right. the problem is when you have 10 years of double-digit appreciation, mm-hmm. when you want to downsize, you still might be buying right. up in value. Right. So yeah. that doesn't allow for that transfer to occur. Well, my aunt and uncle, you, you got to check that too because my aunt and uncle just sold one in Santa Clara County and bought one here in San Luis Obispo County, and they've been in the house in Santa Clara County since uh, before Proposition 13. And... They were told that they couldn't do that. And so here's another problem with the property transfer transfer. between counties. There's only seven counties that allow an inter-county transfer. Mm -hmm. There's only seven of the 58 counties in California that will allow you to transfer a tax base from out of county. Hmm. And they're mostly the the big hubs like Sacramento, San Diego, L.A., San Francisco. It's like it's not here. Um, So that's another problem with the the tax transfer opportunity as it currently stands. So as I was talking to Greg about this issue and about the duration that people are staying in their homes, having a lot to do with property taxes, Mm -hmm. at the um, state level, they're talking about trying to get an initiative on the ballot um, to, to propose a change to that property tax transfer opportunity, that it won't be limited to the same or lower value home, that it will be any priced home um, and that it won't be, it'll be a statewide thing. It won't be limited to certain counties or let counties decide that it'll just be mandated that the state will allow this. Um, And so it was interesting the way he's describing it was like, if you sell a $500,000 home and buy a $700,000 home, you get to transfer your base for the 500,000 and then you're only paying Mm -hmm. the new rate on the 200,000. So that would be cool. And that better. And the belief um, at the state level among the the realtor community is that that could free up uh, some of this inventory that people have clearly not been, not been willing to free up. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. People want to move, but they just can't financially swing it because there's, there's some new calculations there. They're going to have to, to apply to their scenario. So, yeah. and in my aunt and uncle's case, they were definitely within the parameters because they sold right. the home in Santa Clara County, right down the street from the new Apple campus, uh, which really put up the property values. Yeah, um, and then bought a nice home in Paso Robles for um, about seven hundred thousand dollars less. There you go, with a little so, money in the bank. Yeah, so there we go. It's um, so it. Um, 
so they were definitely within that that framework. So, and that can be so frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you think about if you are a little bit more experienced in life and you've got some 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 years on you, where you live when you're younger isn't necessarily going to be where you want to live in 15 years or 20 years or 30 years. I mean, there's your needs change, right? Like we talked about at the beginning of the show, like Jason's grandpa, and I've seen some, you know, I, I've had some losses recently as well, but the the needs of the individual definitely change. I mean, you even just, just physically getting around the house. I mean, if you grew up in or you, you own a two-story home and all of a sudden you're older and these stairs are just not manageable right. and then you're stuck there because because you can't afford to move but you have equity and you want to make a change but you just physically can't uh, that that, man, that can be so frustrating so frustrating so it's nice to hear that there's some logical sense happening yeah. and some some thought going into this to make it a little bit easier for for people to be able to transition from from one stage of life to another right. without really being <clears throat> burdened yeah because that is, I mean, over the course of a of a lifetime, you can see how radically different property values can be, and yeah. that can that's a big difference in in that cost, that property tax cost that never goes away. Mm-hmm. So I know we kind of strayed from your original question here about about the the no cost loan and all that, but I think that that time in home, the average time in home, is important to understand because that does really help us evaluate the cost benefit of the different interest rate options and closing cost options. Mm-hmm. If we know that if if you don't know what your plan is beyond just the next year or so, we can kind of lean on what the state demographics are telling us a right. little bit that, well, you might not know, but, but what we know as an industry is that you're likely to be in this home for probably longer than you even think you will. Right. Um, <clears throat> and and so, you know, it, it might make sense for people to pay a little more for a mortgage to get that lower rate and secure that lower monthly payment for that long haul that they have ahead of them. Yeah, and no, we also see the opposite as well, though, and I think that's why it's so critical to sit down and really fully understand. And you can't get that from a phone call that says, hey, so what rate do you have? It's right. really understanding that. I mean, I've I've done a lot of purchases over the last few years of young couples that, you know, they may have one little one and they want to get into a home and they know that they want a couple more kids and this is not going to be their forever home. And so maybe maybe that does open up the opportunity of, hey, let's look at, you know that you're going to be selling this home in the next five years. Um, but let's look at a five-year fixed or a seven-year fixed, give yourself a couple extra years, um, get a lower interest rate get a lower payment and then maybe not be so rate sensitive, but Hey, we can get you in this home and, and this is all you'll need to get in. So you do now have enough in savings. And so there are situations and scenarios where a vanilla 30 year fixed lowest rate possible just doesn't make sense for you. Right. Um, you can take it, but ultimately this other loan scenario would have cost you more, would have cost you less money out of pocket to get into the house and you're paying for something that you don't necessarily need. Maybe you don't need a 30-year blanket of security. Maybe you just need a, a short little window to get in, have you know a couple years there, your family grows, you sell, and you move on. So yeah, you're talking a lot about the monthly payment mm-hmm. analysis and um, duration in home. There's also, you know, we run into scenarios where 
where people might just simply not have the available cash totally. to buy down a rate. So there also becomes this co- part of the conversation where we discuss your ability to mm-hmm. put down, you know, to pay more. Um, what's your comfort level with having 10,000 left over in the bank after this transaction's done versus 5,000? Yes. Um, you know, that... That matters a lot. You don't want to buy a home and at the end of it go, man, we don't even have enough money to furnish, put a couch in the living room. Right. Um, you know, you want to you want to plan for that kind of thing too. So it, it aside, you know, the the monthly payment obviously is very important part of the discussion, but just the available cash to close factors in a lot as well. And so to the heart of that question, you know, is it possible to do a no closing cost loan or is that just salesmanship and and gimmicks. No, it is. It's very possible. There's there's some terms that the different regulators don't like us to use. I, I think I want to say no cost is one of those terms that that's not that's a no no because um, there's always costs associated with the mortgage. It's just really where is the money coming from to pay for the costs. Um, that's really what what the different rate and fee options are about. So. You have your loans where you're paying more to get a lower interest rate. Those are the loans where, you're, where we're talking about paying fees and points. Mm-hmm. Then there's your, what I would call is the going rate today. Right. That's where you're, you're not paying any points to get that loan. You're just paying standard loan fees, which I would say when you total up appraisal, lender fees, title escrow, you're talking 2,500, 3,000 bucks in fees. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I, and, and whatever rate you can get for that, I would say is the going rate. Um, and then there's an opportunity where you can get those fees paid for with a credit from the lender for taking a higher interest rate. Yep. And and so just like you would pay points, which would be a percentage of the loan amount to get the lower interest rate, you can receive points, which is a percentage of the loan amount, as a credit towards those um, towards those closing costs. Um, the the credit can be used to pay any of the one-time loan fees. It can also be used to um, pay for the for the impound reserves, the taxes and insurance that you're required to come up with up front to establish an impound account if you so desire an impound account. So those are what the credits can be used for. You can't use credit just to put it in your pocket. That's not what it's... Right. Not allowed to do that. Um, but that's how you would get a, a, a loan where there's no out-of-pocket cost to you. Yeah, there's a lot of strategies that you can employ for sure. I think that's one thing that, especially first-time homebuyers, when they sit down and say, okay, well, I want to buy this, you know, this property, and I've got, I now have 20% to put down, so I'm ready. And there's there needs to be this understanding that, that that's the down payment piece. But like you said, there's these other additional costs that have to be considered. And on a purchase, when you're talking about Closing costs being about twenty five hundred or three thousand, and then you set up a new impound account for your property taxes and homeowners insurance. That can be another three or five thousand. So at the end of it, you need the twenty percent, but then you could potentially also need an additional five to ten thousand dollars just to complete the transaction. And there are different ways, like you said, maybe take a slightly higher interest rate and get a lender credit. That's that's something that can that we can do. I think another thing that people don't fully utilize is having open communication with your realtor and understanding, hey, we you can get a credit from the seller 
in the transaction. And that credit from the seller will then you, just like you said, it's a credit that you can now not have to come out of your pocket for all these additional costs, which again, allows you to put yourself in a position where maybe you only need a couple thousand dollars above and beyond your, your down payment. So there definitely are some strategies that are involved that if you want to, if you're interested in putting yourself in the best financial position possible, you, you have to consider all of these things. And I think it's important. I mean, it's a big purchase. If you're, if you're supersizing or not, eh, whatever, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. It's not a big deal. It's a couple dollars one way or another. But when you're talking about buying a house and you're talking about thousands of dollars out of your pocket and then potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars in interest, it just makes sense to take that time initially, plan appropriately, and make the best decision you can moving forward. In the mortgage industry, the tool that we try to provide you to evaluate different loan options is that APR. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it is supposed to be your tool to shop, um, shop lenders, shop loan programs, shop different interest rate options is that APR. The APR tries to take all of the confusing terminology and the the different sales tactics out of the equation Mm -hmm. and represent the true cost of the loan in a one single number. Right. And it's it's trying to trying to show you what your true cost of borrowing would be over the life of the loan. it takes in the interest that you're going to pay over the life of the loan. It takes in the one-time fees and and rolls it all into that loan term and and reevaluates your mortgage as as a your your real interest cost. Right. Right. And so that's what what you are supposed to use. It's a hard number to understand and it doesn't always make the most sense, so you know, we're trying to help you understand our thought process and the thought process we go through with clients is we look at payment. We look at cash to close. We look at time, expected time in home, and we're looking at APR and all of these things. Some one, as we, as we talk and as we evaluate your situation, it might become very apparent that one of those four factors matters more. And so maybe that's the one that we hang our hat on when we're making a decision. Um, other times it's less obvious and, and you just have to kind of balance all the factors. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it would be so easy if it was one size fits all, if everybody had, you know, a salaried job that well exceeded their monthly out, you know, the pay exceeded the, the monthly expenses and everybody had lots of money in the bank reserves and it would be so easy to mm-hmm. to do this for everyone but everyone's circumstances are different and unique and and so it takes a a thorough evaluation for each individual person yeah so I like it there we go we're uh i know we got a few more questions that we want to get to any any that can be squeezed into like the four minutes of this hour Oh, geez. Let's see. Um, all right. Well, here's one. Um, what is, why is it important to open up a new account? While, why, why is it important not to open up a new account when I'm in a purchase transaction? A new credit account? Right. Does it matter? It's just a small Home Depot account. <laughs> is it really going to be a problem? That was, uh, that was from Janet in Arroyo Grande. That's a good question. And I, the answer is it depends. Right. Right. Um, it depends if you are at the upper limits of the debt to income ratio that's allowed for the program. Right. Um, 
And that's that, that's coming from the underwriter's perspective, right. right? So the underwriter sits down and says, okay, I've got an approved loan. Now, all of a sudden, we have this monitoring that's constantly going on your credit while the transaction is happening. And what the lender is trying to do is protect themselves from a new $3,000 Lamborghini payment right. that you decided, well, I've already in this transaction, so let me, let me add a, an additional cost, which potentially, from the lender's perspective, could disqualify you from qualifying for the loan. So they're constantly monitoring your credit. So I think one, I, I, the important piece here for me is the timing of closing. A lot of times people don't know that these things are now going to need to be explained. Right. So it, it doesn't matter if it's the Lamborghini dealership or a new $250 Home Depot account. It's going to trigger the same process moving forward, which will be, oh, we see that you've applied for a credit. Now we need an explanation of this. And if a new account was opened, now we need a statement. We need to see some information and details of this new account because potentially it could cause some problems and uh, affect your ability to qualify. And so when you're down and the realtors are like, all right, we're closing in a week and everyone's holding hands, trying to cross the finish line at the same time. And you stop and say, hold on, everyone stop. I've got a, this whole nother process that I have to go through now to verify this new this new credit card that I just got. Right. That can be a bit of a challenge and not something you want to deal with when you're trying to close a transaction. Well, especially in today's environment where so many transactions are these domino transactions, mm-hmm. right? You've got one person who's selling their home, buying another one, and then that person's selling and buying. And right. you know, sometimes you have three, four, five households that are depending on one person to start the domino. Right. And um, right. And if that one person went and opened the Home Depot card and delays everybody's transaction, I mean, there's sometimes there's per diem fees if you're late. Sometimes there's, you know, people that have already committed to renting out their house to someone else. So there's people who've got all their stuff in a moving van in a driveway somewhere. Right. You know, there's all kinds of problems beyond just the qualification um, there's that closing timing. Um, another issue when you open brand new credit lines is that usually your credit score goes down initially. Right. Credit the the way credit scores work, they initially say, "Oh, you're you're taking out new credit, new risk here." Mm-hmm. So we drop your score initially until you have a history of repaying that credit item, and then your scores go back up to their norm. So it is a problem. It is something you should not do or you should at least discuss with your loan officer before you do it. We're being forced out here into the top of the hour break. Uh, We'll be back for another hour. We've got more question and answer, and we hope to hear from you on the next hour of Mortgage Matters. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. It's the second hour of Mortgage Matters. We're live here. You can give us a call if you have a question. 
would like to share a comment, number to the studio here is 543-8830. Spent the last part of the last hour just sharing some questions that have have funneled into our office through clients or just through... um, Potential customers who email us questions, we get those a lot to just our general info um, at Central Coast Lending email. Mm-hmm. So we're sharing some of those questions with you here online, but if you have a have a question or a comment or want to add on to anything we're talking about, we'd love to hear from you. It always makes for a better show. 543-8830. Let's uh, jump right back into it. Should we continue on? Well, really quick, you just got to address the, uh, the train song. As much as the train is a great way to travel, I really enjoyed it going down <laughs> south. Yeah. Um, it doesn't run when there's mud on the tracks. Right. So unfortunately, I think it's not it's not going right now. Do no, it? actually, it is. Oh, it is. They the reopened train, it. They reopened it. Okay. The, the freeway is not. The freeway is not. The freeway okay. where we they were saying Monday, but I was I was it's reading. Not, it's not going to be Monday. Okay, so it's good to hear that the train's open. Where uh, where is it that the 101 is closed? Uh, closed. Montecito. Yeah, I cl- I I just was. We can update people. I was just actually looking at it during the motor miles this morning. It was closed at Highway 150, which is south of Carpinteria. Okay. And then it's also, um, and then for us heading south, it's still closed at Milpa Street in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So you're lucky you didn't get stuck mm-hmm. down there. I mean, there's a there's yeah, a real we, possibility being down in San Diego, you can't drive or take the train home. Well, we didn't have a car to drive yeah. back. Well, so even, yeah, I either. guess we could have done a one way rental or something. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was we oh. we went down not when the fires were fully contained, but when they were mostly contained. Right. We went down right after that, but right before the mudslides. So mm-hmm. just total devastation. I I can't help but think how much better the whole situation would have been if those two events had happened in reverse if we had gotten all the rain and then the fire happened right would we probably would have avoided a bunch of mudslides and probably would have helped um the fire not not spread to the same may not had the fire but you know that's not the way mother nature always works so yeah i did not to be opportunistic but just to share with you we're getting a lot of um, information from our investors that there is a loan program for people who have um, encountered these natural disasters that they can I, it's through FHA it's called the 203H program where um, they could get 100% financing on a on a on a new home you know to replace the destroyed home so if that's something that resonates with you and you're interested in that that's something that we or I'm, I'm sure a lot of lenders have access to that program through fha it's the 203h and it's specifically for people who have been affected by natural disasters it's definitely going to play a, a role in sort of how some of these loans are financed and funded mm-hmm. i had a, a refinance transaction that was happening right as all of the fires were happening down in santa barbara and the refinance transaction was in, I don't think it was Buellton, in San Ynez, but it was close enough to the fires that the loan had already funded. It was trying to be sold in the secondary market. Uh-huh. And they, they literally were asking for someone to go to the house and take a picture to show just to confirm there. that it's still there, yeah. which is pretty wild. We're getting that a lot. Um, the, you know, a lot of the investors aren't from the area mm-hmm. i mean most of the big banks are on the east coast that right. end up ultimately owning these mortgages um 
So they just see that the counties affected are Ventura County, Santa Barbara County. So when we're doing um, when we're doing loan transactions in Santa Maria or Lompoc or Buellton or wherever, where clearly there was no effect from the fires and the mudslides in those areas, but they're part of the county that was affected. Yes. We are now being tasked with proving or explaining. Luckily, we've been getting we've been getting by with just you know getting on the phone with someone and saying hey you know let's look at a map together and we'll talk about where the right. disasters actually occurred and where the property's located and right. we'll get through this how well, come the, they can't pinpoint it more like carpenteria montecito within santa barbara county they're just because when the the disaster notices go out they talk yeah. they talk about it as a county that's just how it works. You know, this county's been affected by this. So mm-hmm. any property residing in that county needs to be um, documented. There's additional documentation standards to prove that it wasn't affected. I think that's part of the whole underwriting process, too, is this risk aversion, right? right. So so if there's something that potentially could cause a, a red flag down the road, then they need to address it immediately. I, I think that, that kind of tie that into some of the questions that we'll go over as well is a lot of times these these little minor things like a new $250 Home Depot credit card, or I've got some cash that I want to put into the bank that I've been sitting on that's been in my safe because I'm putting it down. But there's, there's a lot of these underwriting guidelines that just the dot, the I's have to be dotted and the T's have to be crossed. And it doesn't matter how insignificant that we may feel that it is at the end of the day, this is just, uh, we're just in one piece of the chain of this transaction. And so you getting your keys for you feels like the transaction is complete. But for us, there's, there's a whole nother process that is now begun. Now mm-hmm. we've got a transaction that's closed. We've got a loan file that has been underwritten and the underwriter says, okay, Everything is good. We can button this up and, and they don't even sit on it. Now it goes to the secondary market and that secondary market needs to, with confidence, be able to purchase these loans, knowing that everything was reviewed and everything is completely legitimate and on the up and up with this particular file that they're now buying. Right. And I think a lot of people don't realize that this is that just because you got your keys, this not, the transaction's not over. There's still this other process that's going to happen. And because of that, all of these little minor things, minor with air quotes around them, um, are, are more significant than maybe people realize. Yeah. So, and, you know, in your loan documents, there is a, a form that you sign that obligates you to help with sorting out some of these post-closing issues that may arise. You know, as most good lenders will try to shield you from that stuff, mm-hmm. if at all possible. You know, generally there's some due diligence that goes on after your loan closes. And if it's not required for you to be involved, we'll certainly not involve you. But sure. every now and then, like in this kind of situation where we need a photo, just take a photo of the house, please, and send right. it to us. <laughs> right. You know, there's, you're, you're, you've obligated yourself when you do get a mortgage that you have to participate in that a little bit. And so it is something that occurs from time to time. It's not to, uh, not to be difficult, but just to just to do that risk aversion. Well, and that's our job, right? Our job is to sit down and look at your scenario from the beginning, like we talked about even just in the initial home buying process, but sit down and look at your financials and look at your credit and look at everything that is going to go into this loan package. And our experience is understanding where the hiccups might be, understanding where the hurdles are, 
and making you aware of the things to, to, to steer clear of the do's and the don'ts, the things that we need to address. But our job is to make sure that, that everything is packaged up perfectly. So we don't have any issues down the road, getting, getting rid of the loan or selling the loan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just, it's so critical because you see people I, I've seen banks come back at the final hour and say, Oh, this should have been something that we maybe brought to your attention earlier, but now we need this. And oftentimes that this is not something that, that can be provided. And now the transaction falls apart because that planning wasn't there and it wasn't appropriately put together initially. So that just that initial planning stage and understanding those underwriting guidelines and how it applies to your specific scenario is so important, so important in these transactions. It's what separates the Quality loan officers and mortgage companies from those that aren't so quality. There's no doubt. Let's dive into a couple of those things because a a lot of times those questions do come up. And I I mentioned one um, because specifically they, let me look for it here. Uh, Where was it? Okay, here. This came from Jim in San Luis. It says, I'm considering a new home purchase and have been saving up cash in my personal safe and home. Now that I'm getting more serious about buying a home, I'm gathering all of my down payment money together. And I heard that I should avoid making large cash deposits into my account because it may cause a problem. Is this true even though this money is mine? And so there's, a, there's another example of people save in different ways. And putting money in a safe is totally fine. But when it comes down to a $10,000 deposit into your checking account that the underwriter is looking at and saying, okay, well, we need an explanation of where this is. And if you can't give us an explanation, then we're not going to allow you to bring this money into the transaction, even though it's your money. Yeah, cash is is one of those frustrating... It's a frustrating topic when it comes to buying a home mm-hmm. is having cash because there's nothing wrong with having cash and it's your cash. They say it's king, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> everything about it is right. You know, it's it's your money. You've you've saved it in a way that makes you comfortable mm-hmm. and you should be able to use that money however you see fit. Um, unfortunately, that that opinion and view is not shared in the mortgage world and and why is the question I'm sure that you're all asking? It's because there's a big concern in the mortgage world about about interested parties getting involved in a in a mortgage transaction in a home purchase transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been too many instances over the history of housing where there are straw buyers, you know, bidding up prices of homes or setting values by buying the first home in a tract um, and then getting others to to then, you know, think that that's the value of those homes. And just basically what it, what it is, is it we want to know where the money is coming from that's part of any kind of mortgage transaction. Is this is this ten thousand dollars you borrowed from your uncle that is going to require a five hundred dollar monthly payment? Right. Is there is there a payment associated with mm-hmm. the with the money? Is the money coming from from your buddy who happens to be the builder of the home you're buying? Or right. that, well, now we need to understand that relationship. Mm-hmm. Is it you know? So that's that's the thing. It's to vet out that there's that money isn't entering a transaction from someone who stands to financially gain from the transaction. 
Right. Um, other than you, of course, as the homeowner, hopefully you financially gain from it over the the course of owning that home. But sure. But others who are looking for that short term gain, um, those are the people. It's not allowed, and and that's why the, any cash entering a transaction needs to be clearly understood where it came from and documented. So. Alle- allegedly, or it's supposed to, right? So when can you use cash or what in a techniques, transaction? Or what techniques, right? right. Um, you can use cash if you have an asset that you sold and you received cash. For instance, let's say you, you own a car. You know, you have... You have a nice little 2005 Honda Civic that you you just replaced with the nice mm-hmm. nice new car, and you're ready to sell this one. And you could you know I'm going to sell it, put it on the market. Oh, I got seven grand for it. Cool. I'm going to use that money to buy this house. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's fine. Yep. You just have to produce. You know, maybe you have some. Maybe you have the Craigslist posts that you can print out. Maybe you have the bill of sale from mm-hmm. the the sale that you completed with the buyer mm-hmm. info that you turned into the DMV. Maybe you have a copy of that. Um, if you can connect the dots and that the, the underwriting words that they typically will say is source and season. Right. So what's the source of this? Can you connect the dots? Can you show me a Craigslist ad printout and provide a letter of explanation and provide a bill of sale that shows that dollar amount and then show that dollar amount being deposited into your bank? Then the underwriter has, has a story that makes sense. And now you can use this, these funds. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the most common thing that we'll end up seeing is, you know, well, shoot, I have this cash. It's just something I've had. It's mattress money. I've had it for mm-hmm. ever. I don't have anything I can source with. You know, I didn't sell anything. It's just, I've just accumulated it over time and I've put it in a safe and I, I can't source it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I think what commonly will happen is we'll say, all right, well, you need, you need Aunt Sally to give you a gift, and then you need to give Aunt Sally the cash, and right, you know, the money is going to have. Well, there's to a few different strategies, um, it, and again, this is where understanding the guidelines and how they work is important. Um, the the guideline is pretty specific that they won't look at a cash deposit if it's less than fifty percent of your qualifying income. So that's something to keep in mind. So if you, if your application goes through this process and there's a, there's a, you make $10,000 a month and you've got $4,000 in cash that you want to deposit, you can probably safely deposit that $4,000 in cash without requiring an explanation because again, it's 50% less than what your qualifying income is. So the was. rule from Fannie Mae would be, Anything less than 50% of your monthly income, they're likely not going to scrutinize. So if you make 10 grand a month, anything $5,000 or less is probably not going to get questioned. But that's a Fannie Mae rule. Right. Each bank may have a different interpretation or just not even an interpretation, an overlay to that. Some banks are more conservative. Right. And they'll want to document any and all cash deposits. Others will just follow Fannie Mae guidance. Some may have some standard that falls in between. Mm -hmm. I've got another strategy. All right. Um, I've talked to some folks that have had some large cash deposits that they either didn't want to have to disclose or didn't want to have to deal with providing the paperwork on. And so really the look back when we submit a transaction is uh, two months. 60 days of bank statements. Of bank statements, right. So if we can make that deposit and 
two bank statements go by and we can provide those two bank statements and they don't show that deposit. Then it's seasoned. Then it's seasoned. Exactly. It's been in there for two months. The bank statements that we show the underwriter have no mention of this large deposit. And so now all of a sudden, it's just to wait a couple months and now we can move forward with the transaction. So a lot of loan officers will tell you the seasoning requirement is 60 days for cash to be considered your own money. mm -hmm. And that's true, except... When you're providing bank statements mm-hmm. that show history beyond 60 days ago. Right. So it's really the seasoning requirement is 60 days or prior to any of the bank statements that we see. Right. So what you would ideally want to do, if you know you're going to need cash to buy a home and you want to get it into your bank and seasoned, you would try to put the money in in January and then you'd wait until April to get into tra- April or later to get into transactions so that you're showing your February and March statements that won't show the January deposit. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue. The problem is if you if you do something, say, on January 2nd and then you're getting into contract on, you know, March 15th, yeah, 60 days have passed, but you're showing your January and February bank statements. And so we see what happened on the 65th day or 60, you know, 70th day ago because it happens to be on that last bank statement. So then it will get questioned. Mm -hmm. And you can strategically look at that, right? I mean, I've sat down with folks and said, okay, when let's pull out your statement. What day of the month does this close? And so what, what day or what point in the year we'll be able to show two statements with without this large deposit. So you can strategically do that. And you can also, you know, you can start making offers maybe two weeks before that, mm-hmm. because it's going to take you a little bit of time to have the offer go back and forth. And then the contract's accepted. And then we sign the disclosures. Right. And now we're submitting to the underwriter with a fresh brand new bank statement that does not show that that cash deposit. So there are strategies if, again, kind of circling back around to what we talked about initially, if we plan appropriately and plan as we should in these specific, um, you know, sort of touchy scenarios. Yeah. So that's a good that's a good question. Thank Definitely. You for that one, Something Jim. that comes up often. Yeah. So sort of tying back into buying a home. Um, this one came from Jeff in Aurora Grande said, I'm a young professional trying to buy my first home. I heard that my parents can help me with down payment and also may be able to co-sign for a home. They will not be living in the home with me. Does this cause any problems with qualifying as a primary residence and do they have to go on title with me? So that's from Jeff in Aurora Grande. Wow. There was a lot of parts to that question. Mm -hmm. Okay. We'll start with the first one. Okay. Um, buying a first home. Yeah. And parents are willing to co-sign. Okay. So uh, how does that factor in? Like how, how how can we make that happen for someone that maybe needs and typically what I found is either assistance with down payment which you kind of mentioned giving some money to Aunt Sally and Sally gifting that money. Yeah. Um they're, they're, the guidelines for gifting money have have really swung in the direction of it's going to be okay. We're going to be able to provide a gift without much scrutiny now, which is great. I would suggest that really the primary reason you would get a co-applicant, a non-occupying co-applicant. And that's important to say because I think people, when they hear co-sign, they feel like, oh, well, I'm less obligated because I'm just co-signing. I'm just helping you. There's no difference. If you're 
part of the loan transaction, you're all viewed equally as borrowing the money. And exactly. you're all 100% responsible yes. for the amount borrowed. Yes, that's... If there's three of you on the application, you're not each responsible for 33%. No. No, you're all 100% responsible for the total amount borrowed. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's... co-applicant is probably the the proper term. Yeah. Co-signing makes you feel like maybe I'm less obligated than... Co-signing act... something you do for like a lease agreement. Right. You know, right. it's... That's... In a mortgage transaction, you're either applying or you're not. Right. And so the the number one, the primary reason that people would be a co-applicant, a non-occupying co-applicant on a loan transaction is for income qualification purposes. Right. Because most loan programs nowadays do allow gifts. And right. unlim- you know, the gift can be the entire down payment. Right. So where it used to be a portion of that down payment had to come from your own funds. From one of the applicants. So then right. you you know, Fannie Mae used to require five percent of the borrower's own funds have to be um involved in the transaction. So then if say you know, son's trying to buy a home and all the money's coming from the parents. Well, the only way to make it work is that like, parents have to be on the application. Right. A few years ago, Fannie Mae changed that rule aligned with FHA and, um, well, VA doesn't even have a down payment requirement. So it just aligned with the other agencies that all of the, the down payment money can be in the form of a gift. Which is great. So now when, if, if the only need is for, is for down payment assistance, you don't necessarily need to be a co-applicant, but if income qualification is where the problem is, that's when we see the co-applicant really become a, a solution. Mm-hmm. Definitely a possible solution. Yeah. Um, I'll touch on that really quickly. Yes, you you will be able to call it your primary residence. So you talked about a a, a, a co-applicant that's not going to be living in the property. That's totally fine. As long as, as long as you are living and there's someone from as long the application, as one of the right. applicants is going to occupy the property, yeah, then it can so, be a primary residence. Yeah, so that's no problem. I think another thing that people automatically assume is, well, my, my dad or my parents or whoever is going to be this co-applicant. They make a lot of money. So let's just add them and they'll be able to help out. What also we have to understand is they're also going to go through the same process that you're going to go through as far as reviewing their credit and also reviewing their debt obligations. Yeah. So if they have a lot of debt, more debt than, 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 than maybe they, they, than you know about that that you know about. (laughs) Yes. But what I usually do is say, okay, if they're adding, let's say $10,000 to your application and now all of a sudden flush with $10,000 more in income, you're going to be able to qualify. We also have to to consider what debts they have. And if they have $5,000 in debt and $10,000 in income, that's basically a wash. They're really not adding anything to your application. So they're adding a 50% debt ratio, which which isn't going to help. Right. So we have to make sure that yes, they're willing to, to help you out and be a co-applicant, but we also have to understand their credit profile and what they are bringing to the table. Another piece is in the mortgage world. We always use the, the middle credit score of the lowest borrower. So we have to be strategic when we, when we look at that as well. Does mom have some things that, that maybe dad doesn't have on his credit? And so her credit score is much lower. 
And so now all of a sudden, maybe we have the conversation of, well, let's not have mom on there, but only have dad because his middle credit score is higher and we don't want to be forced to use this, this lower credit. So there's, again, there's planning. Sorry, mom. I don't mean to, it's, it could have been dad too. Dad does some right. silly things too. But, uh, but th- these things are important to understand and, and no, you can't just automatically assume that adding someone as a co-applicant is going to benefit this scenario any. Another assumption related to that co-applicant mm-hmm. is that that payment obligation won't... Well, the question is, will it affect their ability to apply for other loans? Right. And the answer is yes. I mean, as a co-applicant, Definitely. this payment will appear on your credit report yes. until it's paid off. Yep. So... It will show that you have a, a mortgage here. You know, the good thing, though, what I at least in the mortgage world is that payments can be excluded from your debt ratio if you can document that someone else makes the payment every month for 12 consecutive months for the for the most recent 12 consecutive months. Right. So. So will will the payment affect you know the the non occupying applicants ability to qualify for other debts? Yes and no. Um, yes, it will be there. Yes, it will be something that will have to be addressed and explained. But there is a way to make it not impact qualifying if you can prove that. Well, yeah, I I did apply with my son, but my son makes all the payments, and here's his last twelve months of direct you know auto pay, you know, from his bank account or checks that he actually wrote. Here's copies of those. A lot to navigate, right? Yeah. But it's something to consider. Right. And, and you got to also trust that your, that your offspring is capable of making this payment and not going to saddle you with the debt that you didn't really want. Right. Because again, you are 100% responsible for repayment of that debt. Right. The story of, well, I only co-signed. That doesn't (laughs) work. No, no. (laughs) Um, hey, we're we're about halfway through this hour. It's flying by here. Um, we do have more questions that were that were um, we've gathered up over the last couple of weeks that we are willing to go through here. We also have the phone lines open if you'd like to call in and ask your own question. We'd love to hear from you. Five four three eight eight three zero. We're going to step aside for one more break before we round out this edition of Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Blending. Central Coast Blending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. 
through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change. Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your host, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. Gotta play one for Jason Grody here. <laughs> I will survive. <laughs> All Dan right. and I pretend not to be Grateful Den fans. Actually, when Jason's here, it's kind of a little bit of dichotomy there. Yeah. <laughs> Raise a little bit of tension in the show. <laughs> it's not tension, it's just good natured fun. Yeah, exactly. Just a little, little jabbing of friends. Yeah. Um,. All right. Well, yeah, we're uh, we're just continuing on here. Mm-hmm. Got the the mm-hmm. question and answer. Do want to remind you guys? We don't do it enough. Not not try not to be real salesy here on the on the air, but we are representing Central Coast Lending. You probably hear the commercials during the break. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we Central we, Coast <laughs> <laughs> got the jingle that won't go away. Um, you know, we just we we present this show every week. We've done it for a long time. Just try to try to be a resource for you. Try to answer questions, address topics that might be interesting to you, and uh, and we continue to do this to to just let you know that we're here and we're willing to help and want to do the right thing for any and all of our customers in the area and hope that um, that we can win your business through our our helpful approach an informational type of approach rather than being so salesy so yeah definitely if you have any questions similar to sort of what we're covering here this is what we do and this is these are the types of questions we field on a regular basis i i always like to tell people it's always interesting especially initially um you know people that that are respectful of your time often will say well you know i'm not quite ready yet so i don't want to waste your time and Man, this journey is so different for so many people. And sometimes you talk to folks and it's like, hey, I'm two weeks into a 30-day escrow. The bank just said I can't qualify. I need a loan like yesterday. And sometimes it's next week, sometimes it's next month, and sometimes it's a couple of years down the road. And just sort of knowing this is what I enjoy about my job is sitting down, doing that planning, looking at timelines, looking at the things that we can do to put you in the best you know, situation possible 
and just coming up with a game plan. And it, to me, it doesn't matter if it's next week or two years from now. Yeah. I just, I, I want to make sure that we provide the right information and empowering you with that information will allow us together or really you're the boss. You're the one that makes the decisions on timelines. Let's, let's pick a timeline and a game plan that works for you. And that's, that's the part of my job that I really enjoy. And I think that that's, uh, that's important. Yeah, it's important to be able to provide that. So that's what we do. So give us a call, obviously. Email us. Um, we're here for you for sure. Yeah. 543 loan. There it is. If you want to buy or refinance a home, just call 543 loan. <laughs> um, I'm not going to sing it as a jingle. <laughs> I'm not going to sing Should I cue like the spot again? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> right. So there was another question that I've actually gotten that has come up several times over the last couple of months and has unfortunately played a relatively significant role in me losing some sleep over a couple transactions. But that's with uh, with the Experian you know, credit breach that we've had. And so there's a lot of questions out there about, about credit. Um, about credit freezes, um, a temporary freeze, a permanent freeze, locking my credit, um, all three bureaus, just one bureau. What should I do? So this question came from Bill in Pismo Beach, and I thought it was appropriate. I placed a freeze on my credit report because of everything that happened with Equifax last year. How does this affect my loan process? Do I need to do anything to move forward with my purchase transaction? That's from Bill in Pismo Beach. Whew, that's a tough one. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm all for the credit freezes. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, we had, what was it, 145 million Americans? Basically every adult that oh has a credit gosh. profile got hacked. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Like, uh. <laughs> I mean, really, that's what it is, right? Right. It's got to be about the number of adults yep. over the age of 18 that right. have credit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it, everyone's been affected by it. Right. And so, yeah, it's a lot of people are ta- have taken action, you know, whether th- through recommendations from Equifax themselves or just because of their own desire to do so. They've they've done these freezes or credit monitoring services, and um, you know, there's there's different ways to protect your credit, and I am not too privy to all of the ways they impact our ability to get a credit report. I just know that there are certain types of freezes Mm -hmm. that prevent us from even being able to pull your credit. Right. And so when that occurs, um, we, you know, we run your credit per the usual process. We get a couple pieces of data from you, your birth date, social security number, you know, your legal name, that kind of thing, address history for a couple of years, and we're able to pull your credit. Um, and if, if it comes back that unable to generate score, you know, it will usually say that it's due to some kind of credit freeze that's gone on and you need to ask the borrower to the applicant to unlock it. Mm -hmm. And so what'll happen is the, the applicant needs to reach out to the, the one bureau or the credit service or whoever they initiated, initiated the freeze freeze with, they need to unlock it whether it's just for a short window of time or for longer um, they need to unlock it so that we can get that credit report mm-hmm. usually we're only getting one credit report during the prize at the beginning of the process we get that one credit report the credit report is good for our loan transaction for 90 days mm-hmm. 
So as long as the loan transaction closes within 90 days of pulling that credit report, we won't need to access your credit again. There is some ongoing monitoring during the process. Well, that that's where it can get tricky. Yeah. That's so, where it can get tricky because we talked about it earlier in the show. Have you had this on effect transaction? I have. Okay. Yeah, Let's I have where it. sort of similar um, people read these things online and, and it is true. We can, we can temporarily unfreeze a, 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 someone's credit get access to that credit report and initially have all of the information that we need, basically a full credit report to submit to underwriting to start the transaction. But that temporary freeze or, or I I should take that back. Temporary temporary unfreezing is where it gets tricky because I mean, right there it says temporary, right? So, which means at some point in the near future, it's going to be frozen again. And with this undisclosed debt monitoring that happens during the transaction, at some point in the transaction, um, they're going to need to review that again to make sure that, again, there was there was no additional um, loans, there's no additional inquiries, there's no additional obligations that may dis- dis- basically put you in a position where you're not going to qualify for this right. loan, right? So usually that monitoring is done shortly before funding. After your loan is approved... It's it's right. a it's a condition of funding the loan, not a condition of final loan approval. Right. Um, so, and that's where it gets tricky, right? The last thing you want is to have something come up at the end of a transaction that now you're going to have to deal with. But if you know about it, you can plan for it, and that's what where we try to help you is right. to plan for it because sometimes it can be difficult. We've had difficulties getting those bureaus or monitoring services to unfreeze it takes 24 hours for the freeze to unfreeze to happen yes and, you know they said well, it, it was going to be take... a 72 hour window but it, right. it, you know i tried it and i've tried it for the last three days and it hasn't worked so what's going on and, right and that's that's the that's the thing to keep in mind is what we typically see is these these windows where it'll take 24 to 48 hours well if i if i process it on a wednesday and by Friday afternoon, it comes back and it says, oh, you're temporary. Um, you, you, you're still frozen. You know, we we tried to do this on Wednesday, but it's still showing frozen. We're going to have to reprocess this on Monday. And so now we're reprocessing that request on Monday and maybe not getting results back until now Wednesday. So there's a there's a full week that just vanished where we can't make that up. And, and when you're talking about like we talked about these these chains of of events where one house is closing and that money's being transferred to this other escrow and so we have a week that's just dead or maybe delayed in financing and that that's that can be a a problem it can be a problem so, so i guess the thing to understand is to work with someone that fully understands that and make sure that if your credit is frozen that you have that open communication because we're going to need to know sort of the details of that and not just broad details, but the finer details of sort of what you've done, because honestly, people can just go on in the middle of the night and decide, you know what? I'm nervous about my credit. I'm going to freeze it now. Yeah. And that can be, that can be poor timing. Yeah. That can be poor timing. So it's important to know, have that conversation. If you're one of those people that did the responsible thing, put a freeze on your credit, make sure that we understand that or whoever you're dealing with understands that because yes, it definitely can affect and delay the process, add a few days, and adding a few days at closing when everyone's got a specific timeline in mind um, can be can be problematic. Yeah, that 
that timeline thing, it doesn't seem like a big deal. I, I mean, you know, it seems like, what's the big deal if we just, you know, let's push it back a day or two. Well, it is a, con- a legal contract, mm-hmm. first of all, with a contractual close of escrow date. So mm-hmm. it is a legally binding contract. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one one issue. But I, I think m- more important is that if if other people whose transactions depend on you right. uh, are being impacted, then that's where the problems really occur. Like like we said, if if there's someone else who's who's got that domino transaction, they've got their home packed up in the moving van waiting for you to bring your money to the table to close and they they're waiting and they're they've got their house with a tenant ready to move into their place and mm-hmm. you know that can be a problem. So it's not always so easy to just, well, let's just close tomorrow or, mm-hmm. let's, you know, the day let's close next week. No big deal. I, I can wait. You right. know, so everyone else should be able to wait, too. That's right. not always the case. And there's also other things to consider. Um, the, this, this comes up even in refinance transactions. And, you know, typically in a refinance transaction, there's not that you know, there's not the realtors involved. There's not, you know, the, the people, the, all of the other parties that are involved in a purchase transaction. But there's always a rate lock expiration to consider. Yep. And so if we're up against, you know, rate lock timing and this one week delay is now going to to cause your rate lock to expire, there's definitely going to be some added fees there to keep that interest rate that you have now locked in that now is, you know, expiring. So it's important to know that it doesn't only happen on a purchase transaction, but a refinance transaction as well. So, so yes, good question, Bill. And it is important to know, um, and understand sort of how that will affect and potentially could affect, um, the closing. But the, the, the short answer is, the underwriter will be continuing to monitor your credit and that a permanent unfreeze is required to fund your transaction, a permanent. So it's, you can learn that the hard way. Permanent unfreeze, meaning permanent through the closing of the transaction. Then after the transaction's then closed, you're free. you can yes, re- thank you. Yes. reenact your, your exactly. freeze. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So. And I think one, one piece of security that you have there is I, I, this, this also comes up as well. I'm trying to be responsible, do the right thing and put a freeze. So there are no legitimate or illegitimate, um, you know, accounts opened or people aren't reviewing my credit when they shouldn't be. And I understand that concern. One, one sort of security blanket is the fact that during this transaction, during this process, your credit is being monitored. Yeah. So if something does come up, You're going to know about it. You're going to know about it because that's the job of the underwriters to be brought aware of these, these inquiries. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've talked about that at the beginning of the show. So there is a little bit of of a security blanket there knowing that while you are unfrozen and exposed, we are watching. And so if something does come up, we're going to know about it immediately. And that, that potentially could help out. One good, one good thing about these, these hacks with Experian or, Target or, you know, the, the stores that you've heard over the last couple of years is that I've noticed that sometimes even frustratingly, so these, um, the credit card companies are monitoring the activity and if some, they're getting better at seeing what's normal and what's not. Mm-hmm. And you'll, every now and then I'll, I'll go to buy something and it's like the card's not working. I'm like, kidding me? There's. I know there's no right. limit issue on this card. It should definitely be working. Right. And then a couple minutes later, you get a phone call. And you're like, 
did we just got a yes. card transaction through this that we wouldn't allow? Did, was that you? Well, yeah, it was me. Thanks, I guess. For, right. Yeah, I mean, that's A little cool. creepy, but okay. I, I would have liked to have not had the hassle at the checkout stand, but I guess at the same time, I'm glad that you're watching. So right. thanks for that. Right. Um, so yeah, they're getting better at it. and They're also, the, the technology now is, is set up in a way where really even any transaction that you charge to your card can automatically be sent to your phone. Yeah. So it just, it triggers that, oh, this, this just happened on this account. <laughs> Ironically, I, I don't know if you get the paper, the newspaper today, I don't know if it was the front page or in there somewhere, it's talking about how two of those card readers were found on some local gas stations. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. They found two of those things. I went to those a little chip I, readers. I went to a sushi joint the other day um, with my wife and we ordered lunch and it, uh, it erroneously charged me instead of, I think it was $62. It charged like $620. Perfect. So before <laughs> You're a good tipper. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a so, great sushi there. <laughs> honestly, before yeah. the, the lady at the register, cause I had, I was standing at the register. Kim had already sat down at the table before we even had a chance to communicate this because she was kind of looking at the register going, Hmm. So kind of pondering like what just happened? My wife came up and already was tapping on the shoulder. Um, they just charged us $620. So that means she <laughs> wow. was actually able to tell me before the lady that was doing the transaction That's told awesome. me. So that yeah. was uh, another another thing that you can employ yeah, um, that will a, help protect you, which is I've, pretty fascinating. I've had some fraud things on my account. So I have a, a very high balance of notification right. on my debit card. And um, my bank is really good about that. In fact... I actually made a mistake trying to buy something online one day with my card. Uh-huh. And I one of those restricted websites. R- r- well, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, you like to that's frequent. It. That's it. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a different story, different no, show. No. <laughs> and it didn't go through. Right. And then I I was able to make it go through and it was my own thing and they're like they called me within a minute or two of that happening. My yeah. bank saying um looks like there's some uh, uh use on your account that's kind of um, fraudulent. I'm like, yeah, actually, no, it's just me being a bonehead. Right, right. But, I've uh, had a few drinks. But, and uh, I just, don't worry about it. Don't but, worry. Why but, am I explaining myself to you? But, yeah, I was, I, was, I was happy about that. I was happy about that. Yeah. You know, and it was like, um, but I, I was able to um, get it cleared up. And, you know, of course, the first charge didn't go through because I screwed it up. And then the second one that was valid did. Right. You know, so. right. Yeah, I had someone in Michigan file a tax return under my social security number. So oh. that was fun. Oh. That was fun. And he, I didn't make very much money in Michigan. I got to be honest. <laughs> you had to pay some taxes. Darn yeah. it. Yeah, they Darn tried. It. Wow. They tried. Hmm. Yeah, fraud is pretty crazy. It's a yeah. pretty wild and crazy thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it nice is. to have some of these things in place. The problem is with this technology also comes the ability to actually hack and create these these scenarios as well. So I guess it's good and bad. But yeah. It's always good to, I guess, getting back to the original question. It's yes, just something that needs to be understood. Right. It, it, it's definitely something that's navigable in the, right. in the mortgage world. We just need to know about it. Right. We need to understand it. It's, and that's so much of the mortgage transaction is just good communication. That's yeah. what leads to a successful transaction. Yeah, I agree. We, I have, agree. Uh, we have time for another question here? Yeah, there's one more. And this is, I'll get, I've got uh, several more, but I want to... I want to jump into this one because I really feel like, especially in this area, um, I've seen this come up a lot. 
Um, so this question came from Art in Rio Grande. He said, I'm, re- I'm retired and my monthly income with Social Security and my small pension is only about $3,000 per month. I called my local bank to see what I could qualify for and Wells Fargo told me that I did not make enough money to buy a home. I have over $600,000 in a retirement account that I could liquidate to purchase, but I'm just not sure I want to sell my investments and my savings to buy this home. Is there another way that I can buy this home except for selling these investments? Yeah. And I feel like this, 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 so many people miss the mark on this and I get it. Um, one of the things that we always look at is monthly income and you know, we look at the credit, we look at how much down payment you've got and we look at what monthly income you're bringing in. And in, there, there are, there are a lot of people in this area that their pensions and their retirement is a fixed income. So it's relatively small, but they're also supplementing that income with these retirement accounts and these investment accounts. And so if, and so this is great for art and I've, I've done so many of these loans that people have been turned down by other banks or just gotten bad information that all of a sudden they're like, it's that easy. Like, are you serious? Like this is, we can do this. Basically what we can do is take these retirement accounts, set up a monthly distribution. And so there's a calculation. Yes. That needs to be done. You have, Um, in order to do this, you have to be of retirement age. Yes. So that's one of the, you can't be 40 years old with a retirement account and do this. Right. You know, it's just right. not allowed. You have to be exactly. of retirement age. So if you're of retirement age and you've got a large lump of cash sitting in a retirement account, you can set up a distribution even temporarily. And that's the beautiful thing about this. We can sit down in this planning process and say, okay, you've got 3000 a month in income. If you made 2000 more a month, you could qualify for this purchase. So here's what we'll do. We'll go to your investment advisor. We'll set up a distribution for $2,500 a month. We'll create a letter. We'll provide that to the underwriter. We'll show a bank statement showing that this $2,500 deposit has hit your account. And that underwriter, based on the assets that you have in this account, this letter, and this amount hitting your account showing and proving that this money is actually coming in, will give you credit for that monthly income. And the beauty of this, and this is always the first question, is, well, geez, now I'm going to be drawing $2,500 a month every single month off this retirement account. I'm not sure I really fully want to do that either. The beauty of this loan is that after your loan closes, there's no follow-up to confirm that this $2,500 a month distribution is in place for forever. You can go back and lower it, increase it, or eliminate it, and there's no ramifications for that. So the answer is yes, there are definitely some creative ways that we can use funds in a retirement account to generate monthly income, document that monthly income, and make it very, very temporary where it's not going to ultimately have a, a long lasting effect on your investments, which is which is amazing, I yeah. think. There's a couple other aspects to that that we should probably quickly cover Mm -hmm. Um, some people who are, you know, getting social security benefits or pension or something, their income level is such that they really don't have a tax obligation at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, social security is one that I see a lot where, where the total um, income at the bottom of the first page of your tax return is low enough where the social security shows as an, as an untaxable item. 
because you don't make enough money for it to be taxed. Right. So in that instance, we're able to gross up that income. So you might be earning, right. you know, $3,000 a month in social security benefits, but because you don't pay taxes on it, because your income level is so low, we can actually gross that up to 125%. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're used to looking at right. is gross income where there, we already expect that there's some tax obligation that's going to be taken out of that. Right. So when you have untaxed income, we go the other way. We gross it up for qualification purposes. So that's something that's always, you know, not every bank will look at it that way. Um, Really just don't disqualify yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I feel like a lot of folks maybe read something online or, or went and talked to one person and maybe didn't get the best advice and they just automatically assume that, you know what, I, I looked into that and it's just not doable. And the bottom line is sometimes people don't look at things appropriately. Sometimes they don't ask all of the questions to confirm that they maybe there's some other opportunities. Sometimes they're not finding current information. I think that's one of the biggest problems right. with Googling your question is yes. look at the date of that post or whatever yes. that you're reading. Look at, was it... Was it this year, last year, or was it five or 10 years ago? Because even, things change often. Yeah, and even six months ago. Yeah. I mean, these these guidelines change so frequently that a lot of times what didn't work six months ago can now work today. So so I, I guess really just just be informed, ask the right questions, and we'll come to us and we'll, we'll help you through that. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed um, the show today. Today's format was a little different from normal. We just wanted to share with you a bunch of the, the questions that we get every day when we're in the office. Um, we're, we're always around to help. We're all over the county. We've got four offices throughout San Luis Obispo County to serve you. One number rings all of the offices, 543-LOAN. That's 543-5626. Or look us up on the web, centralcoastlending.com. Thanks for being with us today. Enjoy the long holiday weekend, and we'll be back next week with more Mortgage Matters. 